This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Where we want to begin tonight, Psalm 14. And uh, just read the first three verses. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no not one the fool has said in his heart there is no God I have entitled this message tonight the anathema of atheism (coughs) the anathema of atheism in the New Testament in Paul's writings he uses this word anathema to denote something that is accursed for instance in Galatians 1 chapters chapter 1 verses 8 to 9 he says even if an angel comes and preaches any other gospel than I have preached let it be accursed in 1 Corinthians 16 22 if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ let him be accursed those are very strong statements aren't they That which is irreverent, unholy, ungodly, which is against God, disbelieves in God, denies God, misrepresents God, is anathema, is accursed. The atheism in Psalm 14 is accursed, anathema. All who deny the reality of God or the revelation from God is accursed, anathema. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the word fool needs a little clarification. In the Hebrew, it's nabal, and it's not referring to intellect. Someone could have the the greatest intellect, and yet spiritually, scripturally speaking, be a fool, according to God. So it's not talking about intellect. In the Old Testament... Uh, there was a man called Nabal and he owned 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats he was very wealthy sheep herder and David and his small army they were in the area for a long time they were on the run they were in hiding but while they were in that area they were very good to the, the shepherds of Nabal they protected them but it came to a feast time And so David sent 10 of his young men to go to Nabal and to say, look, could you give us some food? Could you give us some sheep as sacrifices? And he treated them scornfully and said, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? And he treated them abominably. And this man was terrible. And Abigail was his wife, and she was a good wife that was just married, just a terrible a reverent man who did not 
appreciate anything about God or the things of God or the people of God, and his name is Nabal, which means a fool. And so one of the young shepherds heard that, and knowing that David's men would go back and give that report, and knowing that David and his army would not take kindly to that, and he didn't, he rounded up 400 of his men to go and to kill Nabal and to slaughter all of his sons. There'll be no male left, he said. But Abigail heard about that, so she gathered up some sheep and some food and some drink and went out ahead and talked to David and said, look, don't send your, basically, don't send your soul over my husband because he's a fool by name and he's a fool by nature. So don't, don't do this. And he listened to her. Thank God he did because that would have been a big blot on his, on his record. And uh, so that's where Nabal comes from, somebody who is irreverent, uh, somebody who is morally perverse, it means. So it's nothing to do with intellect, it's to do with what we believe, and he's morally perverse. So the atheist in Psalm 14 is someone who does not and will not believe in God. Not because it's intellectually impossible to believe in God, but because He's morally perverse and does not want to believe in God and will not believe in God. So atheism isn't an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And that's why he goes back to verse 1. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There's none that does good. And so the, the people who leave God out of the equation... Uh, there's a tendency to go down further <laughs> along the road of, of, of sin and against God and do things that are abominable. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Atheists say that it's unscientific to believe in God, that it's unintellectual. It's a denial of free thinking. It's even delusional, they say, that somehow to believe in God you must have parked your brain somewhere that you believe in superstitious nonsense. It's fairy stories. It's rubbish. But in doing so, they deny the fact that you and I are spirit, and we live in a body, and we have a mind. But we're not just body and mind. We're not just a, a clump of cells. We're not just a bunch of atoms. We're more than that. We're actually spirit. And this is the indefinable, extraordinary part of us that separates us from the animal creatures. Atheism and evolution cannot and will not accept that we are spirit. They cannot and they will not accept that we are spirit. Because to do so would require a belief in something that is unquantifiable, that is immeasurable, that can't be put into a test tube or put under a microscope, that you'd have to have faith to believe, that you'd have to enter just God into the equation. And for the atheist and for the evolutionist, they cannot and they will not do that. Because to do that, once you enter just God into the equation, then we're answerable and we're accountable and responsible before God, even for our very existence. As an example of this, I'll quote to you Richard Dawkins, who is the poster boy for atheism today. Now, you know that a theist from theos is someone who believes in God. You are a believer today. You are a theist. You believe in God. 
put the prefix a in front of that, atheist, a means none, so a non-believer in God, someone who does not believe in God, an atheist. But Richard Dutton's not just an atheist, he's not just somebody who doesn't believe in God. He's a, an anti-theist. He's not just somebody who says, well, I don't believe in God, so don't bother me, just clear off and don't talk to me about God. It's just a fairy tale, I don't believe in it. No, no, he goes further than that. Anybody that believes in God, he's against that belief, and he fights it, he fights it continually because he's an anti-theist. He's not just an atheist, he's an anti-theist. But I said a lot to say this. Here's what he said. When discussing whether the universe arose by a just random chance or whether there actually is a creation and a creator. So here's what he said. Superficially, the obvious alternative to chance is an intelligent designer. But I am afraid I shall give God very short shrift as an explanation of organized complexity he simply will not do. Now that is the stupidest, daftest, most ignorant answer you could probably give to that question. He's talking about organized complexity, and our universe is the most organized, complex thing imaginable, but he says, it just happened. It just happened. There was no intelligent design. Nothing designed this. It just happened, randomly happened, just happenstance. There's no purpose to it. There's no reason for it. So therefore, there's no purpose. There's no reason to your life. You're just part of, of luck, some kind of happenstance. In other words, like the scribes and the Pharisees said about Jesus, we will not have this man to rule over us. We will not have God under any circumstances to rule our lives. Now, another one who was equally determined to give God short shrift is Harvard scientist George Walt, winner of the 1967 Nobel Prize for Physiology. This is even worse. Here's what he said. When it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities. Not a hundred, not as many as you care, only two possibilities. That's what he said. Either creation or spontaneous, spontaneous generation. In other words, it just, like Dawkins, it just happened. Just something happened. We don't understand it, but just something happened. That was it. Now he said, spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. By the way, it's back in vogue again. <laughs> they keep bringing it back again. But that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. But listen, he said, we cannot accept that. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life rose spontaneously by chance. <laughs> now, isn't that absolutely insane? <laughs> He's already said it's impossible for life to just happen by chance. But I'm going to believe that because the alternative is believe God created it. <laughs> I mean, it's nuts, isn't it? But that's atheism for you. If you leave God out of it, then you have to invent something. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. Even though he says, I know that's impossible, but I'm going to believe it because other than believe God, I'll believe that. Let me talk to you just for a moment about two witnesses. They're not the two in Revelation 11, but the two witnesses in Romans chapter 1. Every human being has been given these two witnesses. 
Now, what a man or woman does with these two witnesses will determine whether they walk in light or whether they walk in darkness. John Phillips said these two witnesses, here's what he calls them, the witness of creation and the witness of conscience. The witness of creation is external. The witness of conscience is internal. And everybody has got the witness of creation and everybody has got the witness of conscience. There are no exceptions to this. All right. So, the witness of creation. In Psalm 19, the psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so all a man or woman has to do is simply to look up, look up at the sky, whether it's the sun by day or the moon and stars by night, and acknowledge there must be a God. There must be something beyond me and us for all that to happen. That's what that's saying. That's God's external witness for everybody, for every language under the sun, for every nation, for every human being that has ever looked up to the sky. God's saying, see, there's my external witness that I exist. But it's what you do with that. It's what you do with that after you find that out. The witness of creation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. <laughs> so there is the witness of creation, the external witness that's there for every single man to see cannot be denied except we suppress that truth so as soon as man looks up and sees that he's got a choice to make will I believe that there's a creator God that made that or will I disbelieve that and live my life my way because if I, if I believe the creator God made that then I've got responsibility what am I going to do with this creator God how am I going to live in the light of that knowledge and that's where we suppress that truth and that's what the atheist does. That's what the evolutionist does. They suppress that truth. And then there's a witness. Well, we'll come to the witness of conscience in just a moment. No scientist, not even the most ardent atheist or evolution, would ever suggest that this universe is anything less than a complexity of design everyone will admit that it's a complexity. There's a design in the complexity. They won't admit a designer, but they can't deny there's design, and it's complex. It's seriously complex. 
whether that's a single atom to an animal from the human body to the solar system, it's all fastened together in the most intricate, complicated, complex way. Now, this is not a, a creationist saying this, but one single cell in your brain, just one single cell in your brain, they say is much more complicated than the whole telephone system of a city the size of London. Just one cell. And you've got 10 billion of them. <laughs> I don't know if we're using all 10 billion, but we've got them anyway. 10 billion. Can you imagine the complexity and all of that? I was watching something the other night, and it was talking about the complexity of one single protein cell. Unbelievable. Can't even begin to imagine the complex that is. And they say, well, that just happened. Former president of the Society of Science and Design in New York, one time trying to explain how that this world is so complex and the odds, the odds against it just happening is humongous. And he tried to explain it this way. He said, imagine if you had 10 pennies and you marked each penny from 1 to 10. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He marked it. And you put those 10 pennies in your pocket and you shook your pocket and mixed them all up and then you put your hand on, what would be the odds of picking out number one penny? Simple, 10 to 1, because there's 10 pennies. But you put that penny back in again, you shake it up again, you put your hand in, what would be the odds of getting penny number two in that order? It'd be 1,000 to 1. So you put that penny in, you shake it all up again, you go for the third penny, what would be the odds? 10,000 to 1. Then you put 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. You've got them all right so far. Now you're number 10. What would be the odds of picking the 10th one out with number 10 on it? 10 billion to 1. And that's just 10 pennies. So the chances of this just happening is ridiculous, completely ridiculous. It didn't just happen. No scientist would ever say that their microscope or their telescope or their isoscope or their spectrometer, none of them would ever say it just happened. All of them would say it was greatly designed, it was wonderfully designed. And yet they look through that and think, nobody designed that. It just happened. Atheism is crazy. It doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. Only those who don't want to acknowledge God would say such a thing. In verse 18, we read it, it says, they suppress, they put down the truth. Because to lift up that truth, then they've got to do something once they say, I believe God. And then there's the witness of conscience. Because in verse 19 it says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Everybody has got a conscience. Everybody. You're born with a conscience. We're born with an innate sense of right and wrong. Even our little children. They're not very old till they know what's right and what's wrong. They're not very old till they lie about it too. <laughs> 
jams all over their face, and he'll say, did you eat that bun? No. <laughs> Everyone's got a conscience. Adam instinctively, intuitively, instinctively knew that he had sinned. Because immediately he sinned, he ran from the presence of God and hid. Nobody had to tell him. He just knew. His conscience bore witness that what he did was wrong. David knew he had sinned with Bathsheba. He knew it was wrong. In fact, for a whole year, for one full year, he hid that truth. But he couldn't get away from it because his conscience kept chipping away at him. Until in one of the Psalms he says, Lord, it's as if you've broken all my bones. And it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came and faced him and fronted him that he admitted it. His conscience was checked. Even Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he had a conscience. Do you remember how he went back and threw those 30 pieces of silver back at the priest's feet and said, I have betrayed innocent blood? And out and hanged himself. It was too late. But he had a conscience. And that conscience bothered him. Often you say, oh, so-and-so, they have no conscience. Yes, they have. Everybody's got a conscience. But we can suppress that. We can put that down. We can hold it down. We can harden it. We can, it becomes calloused and seared, the Bible says, till we are just about without feeling to our conscience. You keep suppressing and suppressing and suppressing it. It doesn't bother you the same. But we've got it nonetheless. Even pagans, no man can ever say he has not felt it. In chapter 2 of Romans, and I'll just read a couple of verses, you don't need to turn to this, I'll read it from the New Living Translation. Romans 2 verse 12, God will punish the Gentiles when they sin, even though they never had God's written law. And he will punish the Jews when they sin, for they do have the law. For it's not merely knowing the law that brings God's approval. Those who obey the law will be declared right in God's sight. Even when Gentiles who do not have God's written law instinctively follow the law, says the distinct, instinctively follow that law, says that they show that in their hearts they know right from wrong. They demonstrate that God's law is written within them. For their own conscience, either accuse them or tell them that they are doing what is right or wrong. Ah, their own conscience telling them. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But if a man's conscience probes him and makes him wonder, take Take a man living in the middle of the Gobi Desert. He's never read a Bible, never heard about Jesus, never been to church in his life. Not really a religious man, as we would say, but he's in the Gobi Desert. And at night, the sky is just ablaze with stars. And he's looking up. He's looking up and he's thinking. Surely, surely something or someone made that. that. That just could not have happened. Some being beyond us on this earth made that. And I would like to know who that being is. 
if his conscience is bothering him about all of that, and he's thinking, and he'd like to know who that is, I guarantee you God would go out of his way to find that man in the Gobi Desert and to tell him about the Lord Jesus, who is the true creator of everything. Do you remember how that Philip was preaching in Samaria? He's having a great revival, but there was an Ethiopian eunuch. He had gone to Jerusalem. He had gone to the feast. He had made his way back. He was in the middle of Gaza in the desert, and he stopped to read the scroll of Isaiah, and he couldn't understand it. He was seeking and searching, but he couldn't understand it. What did God do? God looked down and saw that man, and he stopped Philip in the midst of a revival and said, Philip, I want you to go to Gaza. There's a man there, and I want you to speak to him. And he went, and he shared Isaiah with the man, showed him the truth, and the man got wonderfully gloriously saved and got baptized at the same time. God stopped a revival for one person who was thinking about the things of God. So even an atheist, even a non-believer, if there's one single part of them questions and wonders or has a twinge of conscience about things and looks up and just wonders, is there a God after all? That can just open the door for God to begin to move in that man's life. And something crosses his path. Someone crosses his path. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Atheism is always a heart issue. It's never a head issue. It's a heart issue. It's a moral problem. It's not a mental problem. In John 6, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. He wanted some time to be his own because the people wanted to make him a king. And he wasn't having that. And so they got onto the boat and they went away to the other side. But the people followed around the coast. And they were making demands. And he said... The reason you want me to do things is because you want to feed your bellies. I'm paraphrasing. You're materialists. You just want these signs for what it's going to do to you and for you. That's what you want. And he wasn't having any at that point. And so then he took his disciples aside and he began to share with them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they didn't get it. If that's strange, what does he mean? Actually, eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he says, no. Of course, he was talking about spiritual things. <laughs> he's talking of fellowshipping with him, spiritual things. And then he says, well, what are you going to say if, if suddenly I go? What are you going to do then? If you think I'm talking about literal thing here rather than spiritual, what are you going to do when I go? What are you going to do then? You see, after that, the crowd began to melt away. This is a hard saying. Who can understand this? And from that time, it says, many no more walked with him. They walked away. And then he turned around to his disciples and said, would you go also? Would you like to go? And Peter says, Lord, where could, where could we go? He says, you alone have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere for us to go because you're it. 
And he was right. He was absolutely right. But many of his disciples, many of them, says from that moment, walked away from him. When it came to a hard choice and a hard decision and something they were struggling to understand, rather than stick with it and get to know him more, they just walked away. People will either walk to Christ or they'll walk away from Christ. They'll either continue to believe in him or they'll stop believing in him. And so decisions have to be made. If they walk away from Christ or they no longer believe in Christ, what are they going to turn to? What's their alternative? Atheism. Atheism. But what's that going to do for them? What has atheism or communism, which is his offshoot, what has that ever done for anybody? What has it ever done for anyone in the former Soviet Union or North Korea or China or Cuba? What has it ever done to any of those people other than bring them heartache and problems and pain and suffering and starvation and everything else? Why do you think those nations build walls to keep people out? It's mainly to keep their own people in. That's East Germany, it wasn't, it wasn't to keep people out, it was to keep them in. Because they know if their people goes out over the wall and they see what it's like in the real world and how people are living in the real world, they know they want some of that. And they want to be that. They want the Western lifestyle. And this is what's happening all over the world where you have communism. It's what's happening. They have to keep people hemmed in because they know if they let them loose, Alexander in, in Ukraine, where we go to, Alexander told us for 70 years Ukraine was under communist rule. In fact, he says, we, we, we weren't, we, well, he was on the submarine, so he was out of the country and he was underneath the sea. He didn't see much of it. But he says, we didn't know what was, we were told to hate Americans. In fact, he says, we called our dogs American names. <laughs> he says, that's how bad it was. He says, we didn't know that, so we were brought up to believe that. But he says, once communism fell, and once we could see what the other half of the world was living in, he says, we wanted some of that. He says, we wanted some of that, because we didn't have it. And he says, we wanted the freedom, we wanted the prosperity, we wanted a better life, we wanted a better, so we wanted all of that. And, uh, and they've got a taste of it. China and Russia, two examples, where China and Russia, great communist countries, they decided, <laughs> they, would, they, would let, they would allow some capitalism to work in their countries, and particularly in Hong Kong with the Chinese, because they kept it kind of separate after Britain handed it over, and because it was so rich and wealthy. But the trouble with that is then when the Chinese was coming from the mainland into there, and they were seeing what life was like, they wanted some of that. <laughs> they didn't want to live under oppression. And of course then they became multi-multi-millionaires, these oligarchs, and, uh, and now China is suppressing that. They're closing it down. And now you see a fight going on in Hong Kong because the Chinese authorities want to suppress that. They want to keep that down. They don't want people being Western. They want them to be Chinese. And Russia did the same. Putin did the same. Things was beginning to open up. People were getting a better lifestyle. Capitalism come in. But then he began to shut things down. He began to jail some of the oligarchs and all the rest of it. You see... And so sometimes then when people turn away from God, they turn to atheism. Sometimes they go the opposite way, and it's materialism and capitalism and prosperity. And they feel we don't need God. 
because we're so powerful, we're so wealthy, we're so rich, we don't need God. We're not like the little people. <laughs> See what we have done for ourselves. Now, of course, for millions, it is preferable than atheism and communism. It's preferable to have capitalism because it's more wealthy. But that's not the answer either because we have seen that the, the bankers over the years, in recent times, the bankers and the fat cats has ruined millions of people's pensions because they stole them and they awarded themselves million-pound pensions and cut the pensions of everybody else. So that's not the answer either. Materialism and capitalism isn't the world's saviour either. It's better than communism. It's even better than socialism, but it's not the world's saviour. And some people turn to false religion. We're almost through. They turn to false religion because man is made to worship. He must worship. He will worship. And if he doesn't worship God, he'll find something else to worship. Because we're made, that God made us that way. He put eternity in our hearts, it says in Ecclesiastes. So we are made to worship. And if we don't worship God, we'll find something or someone else to worship. Hinduism has over 200 million gods to worship. They have temples for snakes. They have temples for rats. They have temples for everything. The sacred cows. They could walk over somebody who's starving in the street. And they'll drink their urine because they think they're a god. That's a tragedy, isn't it? That's darkness, isn't it? But you see, when people turn away from God, they're open to any deception. Humanism, God is, man is his own God. Some people have been telling me recently they've been at humanist funerals. I haven't been at one yet, but some folks are telling me they're at them and they say they're terrible. There's no hope in it. There's nothing. There's no nothing. Nothing to look forward to. You just, that's it, you're gone into oblivion. The most sung song, played song, in the UK, the crematoriums, is Sinatra's I Did It My Way. It's the number one song that's played in crematoriums. I did it my way. No, no. The anathema of turning away from God and the truth will lead people on a downward path. We didn't read the rest of Romans 1, but if you read on down there, you'll see that those who turned away from God, turned away from the light, they go into further darkness. And great is the darkness that they go into. And we're living in this, this darkness today. Let me close with this. And then I'm going to read you something quickly before we have our ice cream. Christian and atheist were in a debate one day about, about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian was saying how he changes a life, comes into life and radically changes a person. And the atheist says, I don't believe that. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in your Jesus. I don't believe change comes into people's life through some airy-fairy story. He's making light of it. So the Christian says, well, okay, uh, let me put it to you this way. He said, you're in New York, it's late at night, you're in your car, you need to get home, and you're going to go a shortcut. But you know the shortcut is dangerous because it's in an area where there's gang warfare, 
but it's going to cut miles of your journey and you take the chance. And so there you are, you're in your car, you're going through this dark area, it's late at night, and lo and behold, you get a puncture. So you get out of your car, you look around, you're getting a bit frightened, you look around, you get the wheel out of the boot, you start to change your wheel, and all of a sudden, across the street, a door opens, and 10 or 12 young men come out of that door, and they're coming towards you. Now he said, ask, ask, answer me this, he says, would you rather those 10 young men are coming out of a bar or coming out of a Bible study? <laughs> he says, what would you rather have? <laughs> See? What he was trying to say is, see, Christ makes a difference in our lives. He makes the difference in our lives. And so the anathema of atheism, it is accursed. What if you know an atheist? What if one of your relatives is an atheist? What do you do? You pray for them. You pray that God somehow will open their eyes and they'll watch your life and the best witness and testimony they will ever have is you and your life before them. So you pray for them, you witness as much as you're allowed to because they may not want you to, but you pray for them and you live your life accordingly before them so that there's something they can see in you that is genuinely different. And we try to win them for Christ because God loves everyone. He loves the sinner. He died for the sinner. He died for the atheist. And he wants to see. And thankfully, there are millions getting saved all over the world who once did not believe in God, but they're believing today because God has opened their eyes. Let me just close with this. Uh, this weekend, yesterday, was the anniversary of the, uh, the men landing on the moon 50 years ago. Seems a lifetime ago, but, but here we are celebrating this great feat. Uh, there's 12 men walked on the moon, and I had the privilege of meeting one of them. Colonel Edgar Mitchell, Mitchell I went to hear him in Belfast one night, and I uh, was a bit disappointed, actually, because he believes in UFOs and all the rest of it. You know, he's a bit... But anyway. <laughs> shook hands with him anyway and got my photo took, nevertheless. <laughs> but here is a, an astronaut, Barry Wilmore. He didn't walk on the moon, but he was a commander of the International Space Station, and he offers his perspective on God's incredible revelation, which is available to all. He said, he said, this summer marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, believed by many to be the most momentous technological achievement in human history. As this anniversary approaches, we read different retrospectives almost every place we turn. As an astronaut who once piloted the space shuttle Atlantis and later served as the commander of the International Space Station, I appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts from my own perspective. The anniversary reminds me of another space flight, now all but, almost but forgotten by most, which occurred on Christmas Eve, a few months before the first moon landing. Three men in a small capsule became the first humans to leave the vicinity of the Earth and swing around the moon. Today their flight is perhaps known for the, for the Earthrise photo taken by astronaut William Anders as the blue Earth rose above the lunar landscape. It's an iconic photograph. You should check that out. 
As the crew circled the moon a mere 50 miles above its surface, they took turns reading the Genesis account found in God's Word, and they did. Approximately one billion people listened to what proved to be the most watched broadcast in history up to that time. What do these events teach us about humanity's quest for truth and the search to understand our place in the universe? As someone who believes the biblical accord of creation as recorded by the only entity there to witness it, God himself, my answer might surprise you. I've had the privilege few ever experienced. To date, I've spent not just a few hours or a week in space, but 178 days. I lived there most of the time on the space station and had the opportunity to experience space. I'm often asked what perspective this gave me. Did I have a spiritual experience, a moment of enlightenment that freed me from the constraints of our planet? And I can say without question that one cannot help but be filled with awe at the beauty and the majesty and the utter wonder of God's magnificent creation while zipping around the planet 16 times a day at 17,500 miles an hour. One of the most memorable experiences, by the way, there's a website and you can go on to it, heavensabove.com, and you put in your coordinates for here, for Lisburn, say, and every once in a while, I'll show you when the International Space Station is crossing the sky, and you can go out in your back garden, and you can look up, and there's three men zipping past you at 17,500 miles an hour. But because it's so far up, it doesn't seem like that speed, but it does. And we've watched it many times. One of the most memorable experiences is a kaleidoscope of vivid colors that encircle the globe. It's hard to put into words that one, what one actually sees and experiences because our eyes detect light differently than can be recorded by cameras. The world's oceans are the bluest of blues, contrasted against the rich browns of the deserts and the plush greens of the forests. Meanwhile, the black ink of the night sky forms a perfect backdrop dotted with literally trillions of bright stars of every color from blue and yellow to orange and red, obscured by the dust and water vapor in the atmosphere. But of course there, you don't have that. Often the space station passed through the glowing green lights of the Aurora Borealis. This otherworldly display perpetually reminds us that God designed a magnetic blanket to protect life on Earth from the dangerous radiation that's continually streaming from the sun. My ultimate perspective, however, was always clear. I did not need to go to space to find the creator of heaven and earth. As the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago, and we can see evidence of the creator everywhere, and he, he quotes Romans 1.20, not just in space. More importantly, there's only one place where absolute truth resides. Everything I need to know about my Lord and creator is found in the pages of Scripture, and it is available to all who will believe. The message of God's word from Genesis to Revelation is clear. God created all men and women in his image, but following Adam's rebellion, we're wretched sinners in need of a savior whom we can know only by his grace. God has provided redemption through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, so that those who are redeemed can honor, worship, and glorify him for all eternity. He's a bit of a preacher, this boy too, isn't he? Many thanks God's message of redemption begins in the New Testament, starting with Matthew 1.1, as the story of Jesus' birth unfolds. However, it really begins with Moses' words in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You don't get past the first phrase in the first verse of the first book of the Bible before being presented with a choice. Will you believe God's word? This remarkable decision faces us page after page after page. If we don't believe in the first phrase of the first book of the Bible, at what point do the words in this book become true? 
Well, we believe God's word when it says, so the evening and the morning were the first day, so the evening and morning were the second day, so the evening and the morning were the third, fourth, sixth day. Or when the Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Or how about when the apostle Peter tells us, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Scripture is clear that the creation of all things was a supernatural event completed by an almighty, powerful, creative and, love, creative and loving God. Additionally, Scripture makes it absolutely clear that God created in six literal 24-hour days, the Lord even wove it into the Ten Commandments. Most people in the world today would say that such a thing is impossible. So I ask, how about Jesus? What did he think about this literal six-day creation? He told the Pharisees, if you believe Moses or the scriptures, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Basically, Christ was saying that scripture itself, beginning with Moses, who penned the creation account in Genesis, accuses us if we won't believe. Many will respond and say, science disproves the Bible. But this response comes from widespread confusion about science. The study of origins isn't the same as experimental science, which sends people to the moon or enables them to live half a year in a space station. No experimental science contradicts the Bible. The study of origins, on the other hand, depends on hypotheses and theories or assumptions that just cannot be tested. The creation was a monumental miracle like none other performed. It was completed by a holy, righteous, and infinite God. It thus cannot be proved or disproved by any theoretical scientific methods. Therefore, we must believe it by faith, just as God's word tells us in Hebrews 11.3. We weren't there. No one was there except God who gave us an infallible record of his deeds in Genesis 1. So as we continue reading God's word, we come across endless other miracles that challenge us. And if we can't believe the truths of creation, then how can we believe these other miracles in God's word? Other than Christ, scripture records eight individuals who were raised from the dead. Can these miracles possibly be believed? We're nearly finished. Jesus summarized our part in understanding our place in the universe. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This blessed gospel begins with the creation in Genesis 1, continues to the climax in Revelation when God fulfills his promise to make a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell with his people forever. You won't find that message in space, but you'll find it in God's word. Will you believe? That's an astronaut. So people say, you see, scientists and clever people, they can't believe in God. This guy believes in God. Well, he's a clever man. You know, some of the astronauts that went up there were non-believers, but some were believers. In fact, one of them actually had communion, took communion. He took the little glass and the little piece of bread and had communion. Actually, that was the first thing he did. And so do not, do not let the world try to tell us, somehow if you believe in God, there's something wrong with your brain. <laughs> That's atheism, teaches that. But they're the ones that something wrong with their heart, not their brain. So thank God, thank God that he is truth. Thank God that Jesus is a son and he came to live and to die and to rise again for us. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God tonight and a powerful God and a mighty God. And we thank you that you give as much evidence that you are alive and real. We thank you that we can trust your word we thank you, Lord, that we can see with our own two eyes evidence that you are the creator of the universe. 
And so we give you thanks. Let our blesses, Lord, as we fellowship together, Lord, at this evening hour. And we thank you for what has been prepared for us downstairs as we go now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.